Greetings. Uh, welcome to a Clear Mountain Wednesday live stream. Today we're blessed to be joined by Professor Solomon, who is uh, the, I have a brief introduction, just William P. and Ruth Gerd during University Professor Emeritus of Sanskrit and was one of the foremost uh, researchers into the ancient Gandhari scrolls at University of Washington and is continuing his studies uh, currently as well. Um, I'm sure I butchered much of that, Richard, uh, but I was hoping that you would be able to introduce yourself to some extent as well. Uh, but let me first just welcome you and thank you for joining us. Okay, glad to be here. So, uh, Professor Solomon, would you mind telling us your course of studies, what you've uh, worked with during your career, and how those that's related to the the Buddhist teachings, and and where what you're working on currently? Um, yeah, uh, my career has had a kind of twists and turns, as I think most successful uh, uh, academic uh, careers do. Um, I first became aware of Buddhism in, when I was an undergraduate in the 1960s in a sort of hippie-ish uh, context, so that was you know, the way it was then. Um, and so I started to uh, study formally while I was still in college in the 60s, and I started studying Sanskrit. Uh, and so that Sanskrit has been sort of my baseline throughout. but. I've, played different tunes on that line. Um, so uh, I went to graduate school. I began in 1970 in Pennsylvania. And uh, I went as a, uh, primarily Sanskrit student. So at that point, I, I actually wasn't doing much in Buddhist studies. I was doing more of the Hindu Brahmanical Vedic world of study. Um, then I came to the University of Washington in uh, 19, around 1980, uh, after I finished my PhD and kicked around for a few years. Um, and uh, so I, I was hired as professor of Sanskrit, uh, but you know the University of Washington has always had a strong tradition of Buddhist studies. It's always been one of the leading Buddhist studies programs in the United States or in North America. <clears throat> so. Um, uh, mainly because I was sort of fitting myself into a Buddhist studies oriented program, I sort of turned back more towards Buddhist literature and gradually spent more time on the Buddhist literature and less on the, uh, the Hindu Brahmanical side. Um, and, um, and then in uh, around 1990, 1996, uh, uh, well, uh, let me back up a bit. Uh, I was also interested in Indian inscriptions, particularly Buddhist inscriptions. And that's actually how I got involved in the Gandharan manuscripts because I had worked on inscriptions, Buddhist inscriptions in, in Gandhari language <clears throat> for some years. So that prepared me, although I certainly didn't expect it, but prepared me for the study of the Gandhari manuscripts, which uh, came to light in 1995. Uh, and then that, not immediately, but very quickly became my main focus. And uh, it's been what I've been working on mostly for most of the past uh, 30 years and no end in sight. And uh, 
Did, did you ask me about my current project? Are we going to talk about that now or later? Yes, although um, perhaps, yeah, perhaps you could touch on that, but I, I think we'll backtrack in just a second to the Gandhari manuscripts. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, yeah, so I'll, I'll uh, let's go, go back to the manuscript and then I'll get to that. That, that sounds good, Chronolo chronologically. So uh, first people can type questions into the chat that they would like to ask at a later point. Um, so would you tell us about the Gandhari manuscripts? Why did they catch your attention and what insights have come out of them? What's your research into them been about and what has it revealed? You know, um, read my book. <laughs> my my uh, my simple answer. I in uh, well now it's already five years ago. I published a book which tried to summarize for a non for a sort of Buddhist oriented but non specialist um, audience, summarizing what had been learned and uh, until then. Um, so. Uh, I'm sorry, what was the question? <laughs> yeah, well, first, what's the name of your book so that we can reference it? Yeah, um, I didn't mean to turn this into a sales. No, no, it's, this is a useful resource and we can. It's called, it's called this Buddhist Literature of Ancient Gandhara. Oh, great. And uh, we'll link to that in the notes. Um, so if you basically, what are, I think most people don't know what the Gandhari manuscripts are or what what sort of key insights came out of the study of them? Um, why are they? Why were they worth studying? What do they reveal about the Buddha's teaching or or Buddhism's development? If you had to give us kind of a spark notes version, okay. Um, kind of the the thesis of my book, the the big answer is that there's a lot more to Buddhism than we knew knew about. Or let me rephrase: there's a lot more to the history of Buddhism than we, we knew about our guests before. Uh, and one of the uh, people who, who um, commented on, uh, very helpfully on our work, very constructively, uh, with a scholar from Thailand named Peter Skilling, uh, he, uses, he uses the phrase, many Buddhisms, so Buddhism in the plural. Uh, of course, everyone knows there are different kinds or uh, manifestations of Buddhism, but the point of Peter's remarks and the point of my work is that there are many, were many more Buddhisms than we knew about before. Uh, and I'm talking about mostly about in India. Everybody knows Buddhism died out in India. I know that's not literally true, but effectively or practically or mostly died out in India uh, almost a thousand years ago. Uh, why that happened? That's another whole, whole lecture, um, but it happened, unfortunately. Um, and um, so uh, as far as the, uh, the literature, the text, the, the scriptures um, of, well, uh, of the, the Pali tradition have survived because that's a living tradition and Buddhism survives in the different forms in, in East Asia and China and Japan and so forth. But I'm talking really about Indian Buddhism. Um, and what the Gandharan manuscripts show, 
which in retrospect is not surprising, but it was very exciting at the time, that here was a whole Buddhist world. And we sort of knew that Gandhara was a Buddhist world from the inscriptions that I was talking about. I'm talking about the early AD period. Um, we knew there was a Buddhist world there, um, but we didn't know what their literature was. Well, now we do. Now we know quite a lot about it. Why? Mainly because, well, this is my theory. Um, manuscripts survive there for two reasons, for cultural reasons, which is that they had a habit, they, I mean, the Gandharan Buddhists, maybe I, I should say where Gandhara is. Yes, yeah, please. Sorry, it's hard for me to, you know. No, find. there's much context to give, absolutely. So, uh, footnote, uh, sorry, can't help it, I'm a professor. Uh, footnote, Gandhara is, in modern geographical terms, mo uh, approximately northern Pakistan, eastern Afghanistan, and adjoining regions of India and uh, Afghanistan and Uzbekistan. So this was uh, the northwestern corner of Indian, the Indian Buddhist world. Um, and we knew that it was an important Buddhist area from the inscriptions that I mentioned and from the famous Gandharan school of sculpture that you can you know, you can go to Seattle Art Museum and see some excellent uh, examples of that. Uh, but what's exciting and new is that we have not only their art and their inscriptional records and their architectural remains, which are, by the way, all over that part of the world. If you ever happen to get to Pakistan uh, and you go up to the north and you see incredible um, remains of uh, Buddhist institutions. Um, so why did the literature survive there and not in the rest of India? I mean, we never find ancient Buddhist manuscripts in the rest of India. We get in, in Nepal, there are manuscripts, I think up to about a thousand years old, but in Gandhara, we have manuscripts that are 2000 years old and possibly even more than that. Why? Uh, point A. Uh, the climate is different there, and you don't have this extreme steamy uh, um, monsoon climate that you have in most of India, which causes uh, organic matter to uh, decay very quickly. So the manuscripts, which were written in palm leaf and um, birch bark, didn't last in peninsula India. And then there was another lucky piece, which is that the Gandharan Buddhists had a custom uh, of burying manuscripts. Um, and uh, why they did that is um, a little bit controversial, um, but uh, presumably one, one theory is that I have referred to the term, I, I made this up, Dharma insurance, uh, because as you know, there is uh, in, well, I think all over Buddhist tradition, uh, there is the idea, um, the tradition, that the Buddha himself predicted the decline of the Dharma. And in different texts, usually either says even either 500 years or a thousand years, the Dharma will disappear. Well, fortunately that didn't happen, um, but my sense, my guess, my theory is that um, the Buddhists in Gandhara, with that in mind, uh, buried the, uh, these manuscripts and they're typically found in big clay pots with a um, cover that's sealed with wax 
and uh, they buried them in or near their monastery uh, in order to preserve the, the, the Dharma. So if that's what they really had in mind, it worked. Um, but anyway, that's uh, just my theory. So uh, these were first um, discovered in around the middle of 1990s and um, a group of these manuscripts was donated to the British Library in, in London. Um, and at that point I was asked to come and have a look because I'd worked in related materials. Uh, when I say related materials, I mean basically materials in the Gandhari language. Okay, I have to give a little sidebar on that. Is, is that okay? Please, I'm, please. I'm rattling on. It's, no, no, it's just good. So, uh, we're talking about inscriptions at first, inscriptions, and then about manuscripts in the Gandhari language. What is Gandhari language? Well, it's related to Sanskrit and Pali. And you can make a sort of a triangle. And Sanskrit's at the top, and Pali is here, and Gandhari is here. So Sanskrit is linguistically the mother, not culturally necessarily in the Buddhist context, but linguistically it's the parent, it's the mom. Pali and Gandhari are languages derived from it. So Gandhari and Pali are sisters. Um, so um, we, our knowledge of the Gandhari language is not like that of Pali. Pali is known as a living tradition like Latin or Greek or Hebrew, it never died, so we never lost it. Um, Gandhari disappeared for almost 2,000 years. Um, so we, I and my colleagues and students and collaborators have been working for the last 30 years on reconstructing uh, or constructing a full knowledge of the Gandhari language. And, you know, we have lots of clues because triangulating from Sanskrit and Pali, but there are a lot of curveballs in this, uh, and without going into the linguistic details, there, um, you know, the language relationships are supposed to be systemic, follow patterns and rules. They're not random, but there's also a lot of uh, loose ends. So we we still struggle sometimes to understand the Gandhar words in the Gandhar. But on the main point, our knowledge, our level of understanding the language is like eighty or ninety percent. Mm. Um, Please. Um, so, um, because of factors I mentioned, uh, these manuscripts were discovered and now more discoveries were made and there are now literally hundreds of these manuscripts or even thousands, but don't take my word for it. It depends how you cut the, how you count them. If you count like every little bit as a separate manuscript, then you have thousands, but most of those little bits fit. So we have maybe two or 250 distinct texts. Have, have you read them all, Professor Solomon? Um, um, yeah, yes and no. I've read, to some extent, all the ones that are currently available. Mm -hmm. I, say, I, I say that because um, it's a little premature, but something, if things go right, uh, there's a, a large new collection of these manuscripts which will become available. Uh, there's something going on now in Pakistan. There's a program to 
retrieve these manuscripts. And in fact, I've seen them, but um, they're rolled up. I should have to explain these manuscripts. Okay, the Gandharans wrote these manuscripts on birch bark. Um, so they would cut strips out of a birch tree. Um, and uh, everybody knows, especially you live around here, you know what birch bark looks like when it's young birch bark. It's a beautiful, perfect, clear, bright, uh, white uh, surface, great for writing. And, uh, you know, many cultures around the world have used birch bark for writing, including Native American cultures uh, in, in Canada. Um, and um, so they would, uh, write their texts on, on scrolls shaped like that, so long, long, tall, tall and thin. Um, and uh, then they would roll them up and presumably you know, put them in their pocket or put them in cubby holes in their ancient monasteries, I don't know. But also, uh, and typically when, well, we think when they were starting to be worn out, they would discard them and i like to think i can't prove it that they would you know if a gross manuscript would run out they copy it onto another new one and take the old one put it in a clay pot and bury it for ceremonial reasons or for dharma insurance they call it or or whatever um we don't know exactly why but we're very glad they did so i'm going to the point um when we find them they're rolled up and the problem is birch bark when new, and the reason they used it is extremely supple. You can bend it, you can turn, you can roll it, you can twist it, nothing happens. When it's 2000 years old, it's extremely fragile. So when we find these things, if we're lucky, we get a whole roll, a whole manuscript or a large part of the manuscript that's rolled up. Unrolling it is a huge problem and uh, mistakes have been made, I won't name any names. People who shouldn't have unrolled them got involved and uh, caused a lot of mess. I mean, these things, if you, if you touch it too hard, it'll crumble into pieces. Anyway, there is a, a large group of manuscripts that have not yet been unrolled. And um, that, so, um, I'm hoping that will be done soon um, and uh, very excited to find out what's in there. So your question, I do remember your question, have I seen them all? I've seen all the ones that have been unrolled and are visible. Um, and, and so if, if this project of Dharma insurance worked, which it seems to have to some extent, and these scrolls were preserved, was there something in those in that dharma insurance which we would not have access to otherwise uh, uh, viewpoints or perspectives or insights from the buddha's teaching or the time that are novel to these scrolls or that came from them specifically um yeah um I think someone asked somewhere this phrase came up, did you find a fifth noble truth? I think somebody asked me that at a presentation <laughs> I gave in, in London. If you did, let us let us know. Yes. Well, don't worry. 
Uh, it's not quite a simple yes or no answer, but don't don't worry. It's, um, generally, the concepts, the beliefs, the literature are not way out there. No, no there's no nothing disturbing. I would say nothing that would be disturbing to a practicing Buddhist in Sri Lanka, for example, or Thailand. Um, the what we tend to see, well, put it this way, the manuscripts, the, the documents, the texts that have been discovered uh, and identified, and that would be, I don't know, 100 or more, about half of them, maybe more than half of them, are Gandhari versions of texts that were, no, which, which exist in Pali, in Sanskrit, in Tibetan, in Chinese, or any combination of the above. They're, uh, familiar, you could call them translations of known texts. The other half, more or less, are um, maybe 40% are texts that we've never seen before. But there's no fifth noble truth. Um, actually, there was a, a funny thing happened in one of these manuscripts of a previously unknown text, a kind of Abhidharma treatise or uh, argument debate. Um, there actually is a reference to a fifth noble truth, but it's it's a it's a um, a straw man argument. It's an argument about between the I don't know if people are familiar with the Sarvastivadins yeah. versus the, the uh, other school, and the Sarvastivadins say that everything exists in past, present, and future. So I want to ask them, well, does a fifth noble truth? So it actually refers to fifth noble truth in one of these manuscripts and so you know my eyes bug out and then we see the context and uh, it's it's just a, a strong man rhetoric it's a rhetorical argument so no no fifth noble truth no right. radical uh radically unusual doctrinal um content and are any of the um it sounds like some of the novel texts are abhidhamma or later are there any ones that have a decent ring of being the Buddha's own words or original suttas that it were lost in the other traditions? Who am I to judge? Um, we, I, I don't think so. I don't see any reason to, we get, um, you know, uh, Buddhist suttas, especially when you look at the Pali canon, which I'm sure you're familiar with, there's a lot of cutting and pasting. If you look at like the Anguttara Nikaya, um, there are, depending on how you cut it, what I think three or four thousand sutras, but it's been pointed out, Bhikkhu um, Bodhi uh, discussed this, that there's a kind of multiplication factor that you can theoretically multiply these and, and come up with like, I don't remember, 15,000 suttas or something like that. With, mentioned by somebody. So we do find uh, suttas that were not known to us in the Pali, in the Central Asian Sanskrit and Chinese translations, but they're not usually radically new. They're different kinds of cuttings and pastings. Um, what we find, well, what to me is uh, interesting um, and new is local what i call local lore uh, which is um 
stories, these are avadanas. Uh, you know, um, well, they're labeled as avadanas, but they're not probably like the avadanas you might be familiar with. Uh, and they actually uh, present something of the historical circumstances uh, of Buddhism in, uh, let's say, first century Gandhara. And they actually, have, they're fragments, unfortunately, just fragments of discussions between, say, a monk and a king. And um, these kings are actually living, they're not the kings that are mentioned in ancient texts in the time of the Buddha, but kings at the time these manuscripts were written, first and second century. So you're seeing something of the, um, uh, the historical processes of the interaction of the secular and, and religious worlds in that, at that time. Can you describe that world for us? What was Gandhara in the first century like? Was, uh, I mean, were the Alexandrian colonies involved at all? Was there a Greek influence? Were, like, what would it have been like to, what was Buddhism's world like at that time in that place? Okay, history of Gandhara lecture. <laughs> maybe a snapshot, maybe a snapshot. Snapshot better than lecture. Um, this was, um, you know, I have a student, who, uh, a guy called Mike Skinner, who's now did a PhD here, now at the University of Hawaii. Um, and he did his dissertation mostly about the Kushana Empire. And the Kushana Empire was the dominant power in Gandhara in the late first, second, and early third centuries AD, exactly the time that we're talking about. And Mike argued uh, that, you know, the, the, the first and second century were, were a very special period in world history because, and if you read a world history book, you'll see that there were three great empires, you know, the Roman, the Han in, in China, and the, um, uh, the Parthian Empire in Iran. And my point out there was a fourth great empire, which was the Kushan Empire in India, which gets short treatment for um, for certain reasons uh, in, in conventional history. So, but I totally agree with Mike that, you know, it's. The, the problem is that we have less information about it, and that's why it's sort of ignored. It's a, historiographically, it's a difficult period. I'm not going to the reasons. Um, so um, the Kushans were ultimately, were originally a nomadic herders from Central Asia. And, uh, you know, history, world history in that period is, is very much governed by the movements of those nomadic tribes, people like the Huns and so forth. And, um, so uh, the Kushans drifted into, well, uh, they originated somewhere in Central Asia. By Central Asia, I mean Xinjiang or the Tarim Basin, what's now the western edge of China. They drifted down south into the Stans, Uzbekistan, and then into um, Afghanistan, and then west into India. And to make a long story short, they established this great world-class empire, first to third century. And they liked Buddhism, coming to the point. Okay, thanks for your patience. Um, they adopted Buddhism 
enthusiastically and became great uh, patrons of, uh, of Buddhism. Um, so that's the cultural context. And this is very important for the history of Buddhism because that made, opened up a channel for Buddhism, which was very strong in the, in the Northwest, in Gantara. It was not, I mean, if you look at the, the map, it might look like an outpost from, from the Indian point of view, but it's actually a very central part of that world, largely because the, the Kushans had this vast empire settled there. And that connection between India and into Central Asia promoted or at least made possible the spread of Buddhism from India into Central Asia, into Central Asia, into Western China, and eventually all across uh, East Asia. So um, I've used the term, or someone uses the term springboard. Gandhara was the springboard of Buddhism's um, transmission into the rest of North and, uh, and Central Asia. Thank you, and uh, I do want to get to some of the chat questions, but but I'm very curious, coming from that springboard, we know where those teachings landed in China. I've uh, been interested and spoken with Ajahn Sona a good deal about what may have been a significant influence Buddhism could have had along that Silk Road in Greek and on Western thought, even in an unseen capacity. How much uh, communication do you think there was between those worlds? Do you believe Buddhist texts were written down in the Library of Alexandria? Um, I mean, certainly the original Gandharan sculpture uh, of the Buddha, those were heavily influenced by the Greek outposts. So, what about that current that moved westward? Um, what are your feelings about its effects? Okay, I'll try to give you a short answer, short and straight answer. Um, I doubt very much that there were Buddhist manuscripts in the Library of Alexandria. We'll never know, burned it down, um, but I wouldn't expect it. Um, there are Two points of uh, connection well, uh, that, that I'll mention, one of which you might not know about, might be an interesting surprise for you. Um, one of which you maybe do know about, which is the Questions of King Melinda, which is a, uh, a Pali text, a dialogue between the Greek King Melinda, or Menander is his Greek name, uh, and this uh, monk Nagasena. Um, this is the period of the history of Northwest before the Kushan period that I was talking about before. Uh, King Menander ruled in, in that area, in the Northwest, central in Gandhara, around the middle of the second century BC, earlier period. And we know about him. We have, um, uh, besides the, um, uh, the text, we have, uh, couple of inscriptions referring to him. We have very uh, abundant coinage uh, of King Menander. I actually have one coin of Menander in my proud possession. Um, and he, seen, he, according to that text, the, uh, the Pali text, he was converted, in effect, was converted to Buddhism by, uh, 
by uh, Bhikkhu Nagasena. Um, so that's that's one thing we we know for sure. Um, from my point of view, which is that of a hard hard-headed academic, evidence for connections with Greece. Uh, there are parallels in certain uh, philosophical concepts. Um, I, I frankly don't feel very well qualified to talk about that in detail, but there are common ideas. But, you know, academic rules is common ideas don't prove anything because, you know, people have the same ideas. Uh, some, someone thinks of it, you can be sure that someone else has thought of it. So we only believe it when we can see historical connections. Um, one thing that's happened recently, I mean, like within the last year, and actually hasn't been published yet, uh, so I don't expect you to know of, but uh, there's a place um, called Baranike, which is a Greek city in Egypt. It's right on the coast uh, of Egypt. Um, and it was a major port in, uh, in ancient times, and approximately the historical period we're talking about. Um, and uh, a lot of, not a lot, but some remains of what are clear Indian, Indian remains have been found there. And, and just recently, uh, they, uh, this uh, team, archaeological team headed by an American guy, um, discovered an inscription, uh, a Buddhist inscription in, uh, dated to the third century AD. Talking about a later period, not a period of classical Greek philosophy, uh, and also some Buddhist statues and also some Hindu statues. So this establishes, not surprisingly, but beautifully, establishes that there was a, a Indian colony, if you will, trading colony in Egypt in the third uh, century. Yeah. It's very interesting. It's dated in the year of uh, the Roman king but it's a Sanskrit inscription dated in the year of the Roman king. We never saw that before. Uh, and it's um, recording a pratima, an image. Unfortunately, we don't know what the image looks like. That's lost. So um, obviously there were contacts, contacts and pretty extensive contacts um, between the Greek world, or let's say the Hellenistic world and the Indian world. Uh, beginning in the third century BC. Um, but this object I'm talking about now is much later, it's third century AD. But still, it's a huge discovery in terms of the connections. You know, I'm aware of that, that sort of evidence is rare and yeah. quite amazing, actually. Professor <clears throat> Solomon, I so appreciate you fielding these questions and giving us this wide context. I, wanted to give those in the chat a chance to ask, oh, yeah. ask you questions. So I'm going to give you some rapid fire ones. Okay. That's okay. Okay. Hit me. All right. Charles, I've been told that the Buddha spoke Magadhi. What is the relationship to Sanskrit and Pali and to Gandhari? Okay. Uh, I'll say two things about this question. It's a good question. It's the dreaded question because the relationship between Pali and Magadhi is very controversial because on the um, Theravadin side, or in the Theravada world, in the Pali world, it is believed, assumed, 
um, maintained that Pali and Magati are the same language. In the academic world, uh, among historical linguists, um, most say that Magadhi and Pali are not the same. I think of the name that first comes to mind is K.R. Norman, if anybody, he's a major authority, but many people have written about this. Um, and the reason is um, the linguistic features that we know from other um, from other documentation or other evidence that the linguistic features of um, the area of northeastern India where Buddhism was born don't agree with the don't agree well with the linguistic features of Pali. Uh, what we're talking about, I'll just tell you very briefly without getting technical, it's about R and L. So in these Indian languages, Pali and related languages, this alternation of R and L, as in many languages, including, well, in Spanish, for example, and also in English, but it's not so obvious in English. So uh, K.R. Norman and his school will say they can't be the same because they don't work dialectally. Um, uh, this, is, this argument has come up recently, and uh, there was an interchange of several articles in academic journals um, I'm not remembering the names of the people, but this is a, a new generation of academics who are rethinking this issue. Uh, and I am rethinking it because of, because of this new material. So I don't know, I don't have an answer better than saying it, it is controversial and remains controversial. It's a good answer. Do we know anything about the names and the lives of the people who wrote or hid these texts? Uh, much too little um, uh, about the, uh, there are no scribal signatures uh, or very few. Um, so uh, we don't, I think there's, there are two examples that I can think of where it says on top of or bottom of the manuscript, this manuscript belongs to so-and-so, uh, name, name of a monk. Uh, I don't remember the names right offhand. Um, so what we know is, is only what we can sort of dig up and reconstruct um, archaeologically. Um, I, I often wish, I wish I could meet one of these guys and ask, you know, what, what is this word here? <laughs> um, so, but we, we can find out also, you know, from the inscriptions, we find a lot about their beliefs and practices because we get these inscri dedicatory inscriptions um, sometimes associated with the manuscripts, but in any case, representing the same you know, culture and belief system and population. And so we get to see uh, something of their, uh, their belief systems. Um, uh, for instance, uh, there's a lot of what's academic uh, called transfer of merit. Karma parinamana, moving. So when when they uh, dedicate a relic, and that's what so much of this stuff is about, the relic cult, I should mention, is very central and important in that area of Buddhism. So we get these inscriptions, many of them accompanying relics or relic donations, and they typically have dedications. They say, you know, I dedicate, I share the merit, or I give the big 
biggest part of the merit to um, uh, to sometimes to the king, sometimes to my father. To, to, um, I want to mention one thing, and I didn't ask, but it always comes up, and it's important. I meant to mention before. What about Mahayana? That's you know. <laughs> I anticipate the question. That was actually one of the next questions. Okay. Um, what insights, if any, do the Gandhari manuscripts provide? In there the you go. Yes, please. Perfect setup. Um, the, when I, you know, I first, I published my first book on this material in 1999 on the basis of the early discoveries of these kind of manuscripts. And I said, uh, no trace of Mahayana in any of this material. Wrong. Um, subsequent discoveries. Um, uh, first, we found one or two fragments of uh, uh, um, Mahayana, clearly Mahayana text. Then we found a few more. I think now the count is at 12. They're uh, recognizable fragmentary remains of um, you know, unquestionably Mahayana texts like Pranyaparamita um, and things that uh, um, for about 12. What's interesting, a lot is interesting, but what's particularly strikes comes out is that, I mean, you, you have a, a pot full of manuscripts and most of them are, I use the term mainstream academics, like use that because what else do you call it? What the, the, that which is not Mahayana. And Theravada is not an accurate term technically because Theravada is only part of mainstream Buddhism. Um, so in Gandhara, you have mainstream Buddhism. And we know, we know many of the Nikayas uh, there. Um, these are Nikayas, most of which are dead in modern Buddhism, but particularly Dhammaguptakas, Maishasakas, Sangikas, Sarvastivadins, uh, and a few others that I'm not remembering. And, and just to clarify, the Nikayas are the schools of Buddhism, or the sects. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so traditionally, there were uh, said to be 18 Nikayas, schools, sects, whatever. Um, of them, really, Theravada was only one of the 18, but it's the one that survived the others essentially died out or turned into something else. Um, so in these groups of manuscripts, we find the occasionally, we find the, the Mahayana texts are not in any way separate. They're found together with these mainstream Dhammaguttaka or whatever uh, texts. Uh, and I think all of the examples of Mahayana texts, or the 12 or so, um, are um, were found together with uh, just jumbled together in the same box. So we definitely get the feeling that, well, um, I think most people, I mean, at least academic historians, all agree that uh, Mayana originated, or some could say, first became visible in first century AD. That sounds about right. Um, so, and we're dealing with material from about that period. So what we see is that um, Mahayana and non-Mahayana material were living, apparently living together and getting along well. There was no sense of separation. Um, 
and uh, how to explain that, I don't know. I, I don't, I'm not really the expert. I think of one of my collaborators, uh, you might know Paul Harrison at Stanford. Um, it's uh, uh, the main authority on this uh, early, early history of early Mahayana. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but you definitely get the impression that there was not a separation. Mm -hmm. The Mahayana seemed to be, uh, uh, I don't mean to be irreverent, but kind of an optional course, uh, or an, an optional way that some monks followed and some maybe the others didn't, but living together in the same uh, monastery. But uh, the, the main thing is that um, this shows that uh, early Mahayana Buddhism, Buddhist literature was in Gandhari. I'm not saying it was only in Gandhari, mm. um, but it's clear that early Mahayana Buddhist literature was not composed in Sanskrit, even though until now we found it mostly in Sanskrit or in Chinese. And so, but, Thank you, Professor Solomon. And I have heard that the Mahayana and the Theravada were initially really both streams that flowed through the same monasteries and communities until later. Yeah. Um, we do have to wrap things up, but uh, one final question. If you could travel back in time and ask one question of one of these scribes, what would it be? Just to put you on the spot and see what, what happens. It would be, what's this word? What's this word? any given day, there's a word that um, that I am scratching my head over, um, and uh, but I mean that would be the first question. But there would be many more. Great. But my my other question would be, why did you bury that stuff? <laughs> Was that for us? I like it. Thank you. Um, well, I'm gonna uh, post the link to the Zoom. For those who join us regularly, as you know, we have a Zoom discussion from 6.45 to 7.30. Professor Solomon has to pack for a trip, so won't be joining us. Uh, but Professor Solomon, we're so grateful for the work you've done and are doing, um, bringing to light these scripts, scriptures, and um, also just for taking the time to join us. It's great to know you're in Seattle nearby, and I hope we get to speak with you again. Okay, please you know, stay in touch. Glad Thank to meet everybody. Okay, dinner time for me. Okay, goodbye.